Does your ass smell? Do you want to feel fresh and clean all day long? Of course you do. That's why you need soap. Soap is specifically formulated to gently clean, leaving you feeling refreshed and confident. Washing your ass with soap provides more than just a clean feeling and helps to maintain good hygiene and can even reduce the risk of skin irritation and infection. Soap, the simple solution for a clean and refreshed ass. Try it today and feel the difference. Soap, available wherever they sell soap. Are you guys ready? I'm hitting record now. Okay, how about this? That's that way yeah, better. better. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. way better. This is extremely uncomfortable. So, oh yeah. no, <laughs> no, please don't do that. Please don't do that. No, 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 no. do it, Jamie. I don't care. I don't care <laughs> about your comfort. I'll use small words so that you'll be sure to understand. You warthog-faced buffoon. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. What did you say? You are a sad, strange little man. Don't call me stupid. Hello. And welcome to The Best Bits, a movie podcast where each week we pick our favourite scenes from randomly selected, weirdly specific themes. I am your co-host, Will. Here, as always, I've been joined by my co-host and writer of One and a Bit Films and Three and a Bit episodes of TV, Kevin. Hello, Will. I have done 50 jumping jacks, two Red Bulls and a pot of coffee and I'm ready to go. God bless your gentle gentle heart and over and overstimulated and over caffeinated heart but kevin we're not alone this week are we we're never alone with our listeners mm. but no. we do have a special guest yeah i'd like to introduce everyone because once we have a, another very special guest and special co-host this week uh the writer and sometimes director of music videos and other cool stuff jamie hannigan jamie how are you getting on I'm fine. I'm apologizing in advance for the shitty audio. Thank no. you. I was. Uh, I didn't want to bring it up myself, but you know, uh, Jamie wrote uh, Pilgrimage, which uh, some of our uh, listeners, I'd say, are familiar with. But it starred Tom Holland and John Bernthal, and um, it's a cracking little film. So it's a great film. Uh, is it available on Netflix or? or I think it's available uh, on Netflix in Canada. Okay. So. <laughs> Getting out my so VPN. Get, there you go. <laughs> And uh, uh, get that down your system. Jamie, thank you for coming on. We're, we're uh, happy to have another guest and to help us out because I'll tell you what, Will, I don't have a clue where I'm going with this uh, episode. <laughs> thank God, Jamie. Jamie, you're in here. You're like our um, st- our kind of like, you know, wildcard pitcher that we're bringing in off the uh, off the benches to come in and save the day. I'm going to use like sporting analogies completely incorrectly for the rest of the show <laughs> i just not really know how to appropriately use it but it's Jamie, a game of three halves <laughs> i am i am definitely not the one who's going to be able to pick you up on that way, so oh god you go ahead. <laughs> well let's Jamie, play foot sport <laughs> sports ball <laughs> we're here this week because last week joe barton pulled out the topic for me best world war ii scene and, um, you know, it's like all, like, you know, most of our topics, just a very narrow, limited selection of films <laughs> to choose from. 
an easy, easy selection. And uh, Jesus Christ, it's kind of mind boggling. Um, and what I'm going to do here to, to this, this evening or on this podcast, on this episode, is I intend to amble and uh, fumble my way around World War II films. And um, Kevin, seeing as you're the guy who knows the least about World War II films. Oh, can you under the bus. <laughs> well, yourself proclaims to be, you know, not really know about it. Um, did you get, I Listen. asked for help from your dad. Yes, you did. And I yeah. went, you won better. I asked my mom. Oh, my God. Is, so, she, is, she, is she into World War II movies? Let's find out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're doing the podcast. Yeah. And uh, on it, we talk about favourite film scenes. And Will asked me to ask my dad what his favourite World War II scene was. But, um... I thought I'd ask you instead. What's your favourite World War Two scene, Mum? Say that again. <laughs> what's your fa- <laughs> What's your favourite scene from a World War Two movie? I don't watch them kind of movies. I watch soaps. <laughs> what's your favourite soap? Carnation Street. Actually, I'll make it easier for you. What's your favourite scene from a movie? Oh, oh what's his name? Um. Oh God! Uh, that black, that black fellow. What's his name? Um, Jesus, that could be anybody. Eddie Murphy. Like my lord. Oh God! Uh, he's beyond there. He makes great movies. Morgan Freeman. Morgan, Morgan Freeman. Really? He's my favourite actor now. Why? Because I love him. I think he, the movies he makes, he saves the last one. I say, you no, know, he saved the child. You know. Are you thinking of a gangster movie like the child was kidnapped? You were thinking of Denzel Washington, Mum. They're not the same. I don't know. So, Kevin, could you not have said my movie? Your movie is very good. (laughs) But I mean, that's that's going back. That's going back some time, isn't it? That's great. Thanks, Mum. What do you think of the podcast? I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was brilliant. It was fantastic. <laughs> You've never listened to it. I I I did. I I listened to some. Go on. <laughs> love you. I love you too, Kev. Do you like Will? And I love Will. <laughs> <laughs> I actually on mic right now. I need to apologise to my mom because she actually meant gun, baby gun, and uh, it was oh. Jamie. You pointed that out, and I went back to I my did. mom and I said. Hang on a second. Did you mean this fella? And she was like, "Yeah, yeah, that's him." So um, it it wasn't Denzel Washington in Man of Fire because I was wondering why would she be watching a film where he's sticking hand grenades up a guy's ass and blowing him up and stuff. Big Tony Scott fan, your mother. <laughs> <laughs> gone, baby, gone. But uh, I I thought she was talking about um, Morgan Freeman and Kiss the Girls or something like that. That's where I thought she was going. No, it was uh, Gone, Baby, Gone, which I now get it. But uh, yeah, I asked my mum, and because I was like floundering, I also asked my dad. Yeah. And uh, will I? Will do people want to hear? Please, seeing as you've played the, your mum, I would, lo- and and I loved her pick. I think she was she 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 brought us someplace that we didn't expect. Just kind of what we want to do in the podcast is take our <laughs> listeners down unexpected avenues. I would love to hear what your father's 
pick for best World War Two scene would be. So could you play it, Kevin? I'll, uh, I was just going to say Podbot, play it, but I'm not going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. go on. My dad. So we have to talk about World War Two scenes. Yeah. And I wanted to know what are some of your um, most remembered or most liked scenes from World War Two movies? Because you like that part of history. Well, basically, in no particular order, I like Stalag 17. Why? Well, I, I like William Holden playing Sefton, and I like the part in there where they discover how to get the information back from the Germans. It was directed by Billy Wilder, one of my <laughs> favourites. I like Bridge on the River Kwai. Yeah, but that's your favourite one, isn't it? One of my favourites. It, it's okay. no particular order. When Alex Guinness, Colonel Nicholson, is locked up in the hot tub and he comes back out and all the men are standing outside and they all start whistling Colonel Bogey to him and applauding him because he wouldn't give in to the Japanese. Do you mean a hot box? In a hot box, yeah. Yeah, he wasn't in a hot tub. Not in a hot tub, no. He uh, might have been later. That's a good one. And I also like that for the fact that Carl Foreman and Michael Wilson were two of the Hollywood blacklist writers who had to work in secret because they wouldn't get the funding from the Americans to make it if they knew that they were working on it. Right. That was a good one. I like Private Ryan with Spielberg. Spielberg's quite good. Yeah. Um, what, what scene in there? I like the scene where they're recruiting Upham and he's panicking about he doesn't want to go where their fighting is going on. Upham is the translator. Tom Hanks says to him, come on, come on, I don't want to go there, there's Germans there. Have you ever fired your rifle? Only in basic training, that'll do. And then he tries to grab his typewriter and he says, no, no, you don't need that. And he just hands him a pencil. I like that bit. A bridge too far, I like that. I like, yeah. I like the scene where Michael Caine, who's the um, Irish Guards uh, tank commander, and he's having a bit of a spate with Horrocks and they, he makes some joke about, oh, not me again. And Horrocks says, what was that? And he says, oh yes, sir, only too willing to help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like you said the Irish Guards, Michael Kim is playing someone in the Irish Guards. He was the Irish Guards tank commander, yeah. Granddad, your dad was in the Irish Guards. He was in the Irish Guards, yeah, but he didn't figure it out on him because he'd been blown up in the desert. He fought where? In the desert and at Normandy. What, in North Africa? North African desert, yeah. Mm. He was given a push bite and his job was to chase down Rommel, but he had a puncture. <laughs> yeah. And Granny, your mum, experienced the Blitz. She experienced the Blitz, yes. She was a nurse up in Camden Town and uh, she was staying in the Russell Hotel. They were all bivouacked in the Russell Hotel at that time. And... Um, she was on the third floor. She didn't want to go down to the basement during an air raid because she was frightened of being buried alive. But she was on the third floor and the, the second floor and the first floor, for some miraculous reason, were blown up, but the staircase was still there and so was her floor. It was kind of a weird thing, but she survived that and then walked from Camden Town to Caterham, pushing my eldest brother, Paddy, yeah. in a pushchair. But didn't... Wasn't there also a, 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 something about um, a picture frame on a wall that yeah. fell on top of the crib? It came on top of the crib, yeah. It was a, a Catholic um, icon and um, it fell off the wall and covered the crib 
in glass and bricks and debris. Saved his life. And when she um, pulled it back up, he was just sitting in the cot and not a scratch on the glass or anything. And she considered that a miracle. You've also been to Auschwitz. I've been to Auschwitz, Birkenau, Dachau, Ravensbrück. Whenever I've been in Germany or in Poland, I've, I've always visited those places out of matter of respect. What, what is it that you like about that period of history or, or what you find fascinating about it? Because I was born just after the war and it was still fresh in the minds of lots of people. I worked with lots of soldiers who experienced it. And I used to ask some questions and things, but it's just, you know, well, it's the same as my, my grandfather was in the first war, fought in the Battle of the Somme with his brother and got the military medal. And explain why you have an English accent. Because I was born in West Croydon. <laughs> That's obvious. But your mum and your dad are Irish. Yeah, I know, but they were living over here. They came over here in 1939 to escape um, the, the poverty and the hardships in Ireland. Well, I think that's pretty good. Is there anything else you want to say? No, that's it. Um, you, checks in the post, is it? <laughs> it is. And just because I think some people are going to be listening and they're going to hear that my dad has an English accent, my dad's mum was from Navin, and my dad's dad was from Cork, and uh, so he's a plastic paddy but he's 100% Irish, so don't give me any guff out there, any of you guys. My uh, grandmother was related to Sean uh, McDermott, so, you know, Irish historical royalty right there. So, uh, Also, I did 23andMe, and my DNA results came back as 100% Irish, which (laughs) sort of says that I'm inbred, but... I have the facts to back it up, so. <laughs> anyway. I'm, I'm 100% Irish as well. Jamie, have you done any sort of uh, DNA analysis? <laughs> I, I have not, but my, my uh, grandfather, he fought in Asia in the Second World War. Oh, well done. Jamie, you have all, like, seriously, like the, star, like the star picture, Jamie has managed to steer us back on topic. So he fought in Asia. Was it he when, was like, stationed in Burma. Wow. Oh, my God. And uh, did, did he survive the conflict? That's my question. I am here, so yes. Okay. Right. Also, That's very good also, point. Also, <laughs> hang on a second, lads. My granddad was part of the Irish Guards who also fought in World War II, and he fought wow. in North Africa, and he was Ooh. blown up. So, you know, if we're taking did score here. Did he survive? Uh, he did, yeah. Well into his sorry, 80s. Because you're here as well. Jared Lehan, God bless him. Also, also, my granduncle fought in World War II with the US <laughs> Army. Ten years. I'm not joking. See, but my granduncle, my my grandfather's brother, he fought in World War II yeah. um, with the US Army. And he was landed in Sicily and fought in the Battle of the Bulge and walked into Germany. And um, sound lad, Tim Collins. Nice fella. And listen... I tried to write all week, and for me, that is just the same as going to war. So every morning is my Normandy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but, you, but you know the thing about it is, right, the fact that we all know, the fact that we all know that we have, like, personal connections to, to this conflict, and uh, it kind of demonstrates how, how, how overshadowing World War II was and still is in like you know in the over the last hundred years we everyone is like reaching into that those that window of like six years to actually see what their own personal personal connections um were to it because 
it truly was a, a world war, a war that spans the globe. And 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 uh, the, the the when I started doing the research for this, when I actually looked at like how many films were made, I actually stopped counting at like five hundred. I just went not 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 counting anymore. Literally, sorry, Kevin. Literally, <laughs> I'll say it again one more time for Kevin. Literally, every decade. There have been hundreds of films made since the 1940s, hundreds of films made uh, on, an, uh, on a, you know, in and about or surrounding World War II because every country seems to have their own World War II film. And, Ireland um, doesn't. Great point. That's the only, not the only country, but I was yes. shocked. I'll tell you what, though, if I was to write a World War II film, I would set it in Ireland and uh, it would all be about like the Irish involvement in the war. Wait, so isn't, uh, wasn't there something about the prisoner of war camps they had in Ireland because they were, they were uh, supposedly imprisoning British I think so, with the Germans. Germans. Yeah, yeah. Get, but I would... Real burn? I, perhaps. Good man, Jamie. <laughs> you're, you're, you're putting us to shame already. Fair and play to you. I was just going to finish my joke, uh, if that's okay <laughs> oh, with joke? you guys. Go on. Uh, my story about uh, everybody in Ireland going to mass and having loads of children and uh, chasing fairies. So... Um, that was our World War Two movie. That was that was what I was going to say before well, our they, guest rudely stepped on me. I, yeah, yeah. They called it the emergency. That's what my great aunt would tell me that time because yeah. they had you know food rations and everything, and it was like yeah, not getting blown yeah. up, but you know, we were slightly impartial. We were slightly. Um, we played our part. We, were, we had you know um, the our harbors and uh, wasn't. I just watched Greyhound recently, which is a really good submarine sort of a, a movie with, uh, well, you don't see the subs in the movie, but it's the film with Tom Hanks. and they mm-hmm. p- The Apple one, right? Yeah, the Apple one. It's really mm. good. Although there's not really much to watch on Apple. Um, Wolf Walkers. I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> Setting you up. Uh, yeah, they dock in Belfast. So, um, you know. I, I'm, yes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the... Um, the historical details all wrong here, but I have some memory that there was a, an agreement where the UK could use Irish ports or something because okay. uh, during the war. I, I'm 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 probably misremembering this because I have a memory like a sieve. Like I I, I mean I guess I'm welcome to the club. Well, this <laughs> is the screenwriter thing. You become an expert <gasps> in something for like a very short space of time it, that it takes to yeah. write your script, and then the moment it's gone, it's like <laughs> like. I knew a, I knew a shitload about 13th century Ireland um, a few years ago, and now I know all that all that information is being pushed aside for something something else. Yeah, yeah. that's the way we prep the episodes. We learn yeah. everything for that recording, and then we forget it all immediately after we hit stop. Yeah. I forgot yeah. it before we started, so I'm ahead of you there. <laughs> so World War Two, then, will World War Two, and <laughs> my point being Fun the fact times. that there's. So many, so many bloody films. It means that everyone has some sort of connection to it. And it also means that there, there is a plethora of stories to draw from. Every, not, not as we just pointed out, not every nation, but <laughs> a whole lot of nations have their own, have films, had films coming out in the 1940s. Denmark's, um, Russia, America, UK, uh, Germany had uh, films coming out. And what I was, when I started looking at it, I was just going, okay, I was thinking, how, how are kind of, films represent how do different how does the how is that conflict how is it represented 
uh, differently in each era, in each decade, you know? And that was one oh, of the ways I was kind okay. of interested. So, like, for instance, in the 40s, what you got was you got a lot of propaganda films yeah. straight away. Rah, so you got, Yeah, you sure. got the Mrs. Was it Mr. M- Mrs. Maneuver was a, a film that really kind of like um, helped push, you know, the, 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 the Americans to kind of not push them, but it was like uh, the intention of it was to be a propaganda film to draw Americans into the war, get them more invested emotionally in, the, in that conflict. And um, you had Lenny Riefenstahl, who was the German filmmaker who was doing all the, the Nazi propaganda movies. Yeah. And um, everyone was doing their propaganda. Everyone, like the UK were doing it. They were all doing the propaganda movies. But um, it didn't take long. Once the conflict was over, there was the whole kind of era of what I kind of call the Sex dad's comedies. movies. The six, <laughs> the carry on movies. Oh, I call them the dad, the dad movies. You know those World War Two dad movies yeah. that were kind of retelling these the the kind of the big tentpole events of the conflict, like um, the 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 longest day uh, with John Wayne and um, Dam Busters. Uh, Dam Busters. There was just there was just an absolute uh, dredge of these films. No, they're great crack on a Sunday. Sunday afternoon, like Where Eagles Dare, I actually really enjoyed Where Eagles Dare with Clint Eastwood and and um, James Mason. But um, the I, I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a couple of my picks from each of these kind of like topics that I'm going to come up with, like subcategories, and uh, see if it sparks anything in ye. Um, one of the films that I thought of, that Jamie, one of my favorite up. films. Okay, Jamie, have you any opinion about The Great Escape? Any feelings about The Great Escape whatsoever? I have this weird feeling. That's one of those... Because when you suggested this topic, um, I, I kind of got a bit... Dis- I, I thought immediately, oh, it's my, one of my favorite movies. And I was like, started thinking, as you were saying, how wide that, the topic of World War II is. And The Great Escape obviously fills as one of those classic dad movies. But something, whenever I was re-watching it, is that I always imagine that it's going to be different that sounds kind of strange but I always think that a different number of the guys will escape this time Mm. as opposed to just the people who do Um, and I I haven't seen it now in about I think the last time was maybe about seven or eight years ago Mm -hmm. Um, but and uh, so remind me who for spoiler warnings who who escapes is James Coburn Don Pleasance Charles Bronson, he gets away, I think. Honestly, Jamie, I haven't watched it in longer than you, so uh, I do not remember. But it's <laughs> like, have, who escapes? Spoiler alert. The Great Escape is a 1963 American World War II epic film based on an escape by British Commonwealth prisoners of war from a German POW camp during World War II. The film starred Steve McQueen, James Garner, and Richard Attenborough. Only three make it to safety. Flight Lieutenant Danny Vilansky, played by Charles Bronson, and Flight Lieutenant William Dix, played by John Layton. They steal a rowboat and proceed downriver to the Baltic coast. There they sneak aboard a Swedish merchant ship. Meanwhile, Flight Officer Louis Sedgwick, played by James Coburn, slips through the countryside on a stolen bicycle before he hides aboard a freight train to France where he is guided by the resistance to Spain. You're welcome lads. Loving the chat by the way. Jamie is great. There we go. Yeah. Thanks, Thank Podbot. you, Podbot. I say great music. You always hear it at football matches or as we uh, were saying, at sports ball matches. 
sports ball. <laughs> but what were you saying, Jamie? So you were saying that each time you kind of forget, you you're, you you don't remember who yeah who actually escapes at the end of the day. Yeah, it's 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 it just. I mean, now every t- I've seen it. I, I think this. If I were to watch it again, it would be the third or fourth time. And mm-hmm. I kind of remember the last time I saw it. I remember thinking like being aware of this and then making a special concentrated effort like okay who survives here because mm-hmm. it just is one of those really it's it's a laid back movie and then like they you know spends a long time hanging out in this very chilled out uh, prisoner of war camp and and then they escape and it's all kind of it's more like a caper yeah up until a point where like a whole bunch of them suddenly get machine gunned for after they've been recaptured yeah. and like oh that's quite uh well, I would, that's because it's, it's it is very capery. Um, it is tonally, it's very light, isn't it? It's a very kind of like oh, da, 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 you know that that song is quite chirpy and yeah. upbeat, and you just have that image of Steve McQueen just doing that cool leap over the of the, 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 the those huge fences, and um, that's one of the yeah, good moments in the cooler war too. throwing the ball against the wall. Yeah, you don't <laughs> really cooler. get those capers with like the Vietnam War. No way. No, that, no, no, no. that was something I was going to bring up because we, I mean, we, we grew up, uh, I think all of us, except for Kevin, I think, who's in his early 20s now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> aging. I mean, um, <laughs> 1999, a great year for me to be born. But uh, we, well, growing up, Kevin, in the, in the 80s, uh, like Vietnam was the kind of, that was the war where I, I guess that was the most vivid one. And, mm. and the Second World War was the last, was the good war. That was like, you mm-hmm. were very clear goodies and baddies. Um, yeah, but it's, it's weird. That's what I kind of, the, the thing I found kind of compelling and not, but interesting was how like they had managed in that era, they kind of managed to make World War II cozy and warm and nostalgic mm. and for a certain swath of films. Um and when I was I, personally, I was trying to say, okay, what what was one what what's one of those films that I actually kind of hold near and dear to my heart, and I and I don't really know why I do, but there was one that I really like. It was kind of, in my head the kind of the last of that big tent bowly kind of like you know huge cast uh, reenacting a, a a massive event in World War Two, and for me it was uh, a bridge too far, oh, which yeah. came out in nineteen seventy seven. I'm pretty sure. Mm. We need reinforcements and above all, ammunition. Tell the general we're coming. They're coming tonight. For two days, they said. We've been here nine. Why don't we just try to bash through? Well, as you know, I've always thought that we tried to go a bridge too far. I've seen, I think I saw it a long time ago, but by sheer coincidence, I was rereading um, some William Goldman's books about screenwriting, and he wrote uh, yes. A Bridge Too Far, which yeah. I, I, I can tell by your tone, Will, that you also read this and that you're, you're gearing up for a, an anecdote. Which I what? <laughs> no, you tell your no, tell your anecdote. Uh, you probably don't. Go no, on, tell. Well, I want to hear your anecdote. No, and it was it was it was just a thing about um, Goldman in his the which lie did I tell? And yeah. he mentions this, he's, there's a low lot of interesting stuff about about the Battle of Arnhem and how uh, the in his opinion the Americans celebrate 
great victories and the British celebrate great defeats. And in their minds, uh, Brexit. Dun- Dust- <laughs> <laughs> had, yeah, up until Brexit, it was Dunkirk. Yeah. And then it was the Battle of Arnhem and then Brexit, I guess now. Mm. Maybe, yeah. maybe Brexit's gone up to number two, <laughs> one. But um, he, it, it was something that uh, just, it was an anecdote that stuck on my head just because I, I and tend to write a lot of historical fiction for my sins. and But most of it's when all the people are dead. Uh, then the truth time. comes out. Then the truth comes out. Well, it's like you, you, you know, you can write something about people who were who died like eight hundred, nine hundred years ago, and it's like, mm. well, it's fine. But yeah. you, you write, and in Goldman's case, he was writing. There's a character in Bridge Too Far played by uh, Anthony Hopkins. Um, yeah, Cap, uh, Frost, I think, Captain. That's ben the one. Yeah. yeah, and uh, when he was writing this movie, and it was all sort of tense because the producer was basically bankrolling the whole thing himself, and uh, Goldman was flying back to America, and he got a, call, a message from this general saying, "Could he talk to him?" And there's this, there's this sequence in it where it's this, this great defeat, um, uh, this great, uh, you know, the, the, the Germans go go across the bridge to ask for the British to surrender, and yeah. uh, the British say like. No, we we don't have enough. They they purposely misunder the guy. No, no, yeah. we we don't have enough men to take you prisoner. We can't accept your surrender. The Germans are like, yeah, the fuck, and then just like yeah. it's like okay, and the, 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 this general uh, this frost problem in the movie, they gave him this line. He said no, but I didn't say that. And so Goldman's situation is like, well, can I have some other guy say it? And you're just standing there nodding. Ah. Uh. Wow. Because you're so right, Jamie. Because I just watched that scene today and Frost says, That's far enough! We can hear you from there! My general says there is no point in continuing this fighting. He is willing to discuss a surrender. Tell him to go to hell. We haven't the proper facilities to take you all prisoner. Sorry. What? We'd like to, but we can't accept your surrender. Was there anything else? That's brilliant, Jamie. That's I fantastic. have seen it and I cannot remember it. Thus, the, I am useless on this episode. But anyway. I'm a bit nerdy about this. And I, I, so I was going to pick scenes. And there's, I love that moment in A Bridge Too Far. But the moment I was going to highlight as one that I really love in that film, because I'm thinking about what I love about uh, that era of filmmaking is that not only are some of the people still alive, but a lot of the equipment and the locations are kind of the same as to what they were. So in this case, they, the, the, it's, it's a film based around the Operation Mark Garden where like, you know, 35,000 men were dropped behind enemy lines basically in the Netherlands and uh, the uh, its armour column were supposed to break through and join up with them. And that was the whole idea, but it all completely went to, to, to pot. Um, but to, dro- to to recreate the the dropping of those you know thirty five thousand men, they actually bought uh, 
aircraft. No, maybe not the exact. I can't remember the name. The, the, the exact aircraft, but they dropped how they actually dropped a thousand men and thousands of dummies. Wow. So we actually see it. The an actual like real life recreation of all of these uh, aircraft carrier in the air. And it is a gorgeous, you know that they, you know that that's their kind of like the tentpole sequence because it takes up like three minutes and these seeing these parachutes opening up in the air is like watching jellyfish floating in the water. Like it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. And um, I kind of love it because you wouldn't get that now. Again, Kevin, this is you and me going back to kind of back saying, oh, it was great back in the day, you know, but it's so beautiful to see the real thing, not a digital effect. Yeah. It's gorgeously made. So I love that one. I really do. Cool. That's a great anecdote, Jamie. Thanks. I wasn't going to bring it up and you totally, uh, when you, when you started saying it, I went, I remember that in the book. I remember that. That's a class moment. It's a very, that really that, his book talking about how he tried to adapt that because there was some crazy turnaround where the guy was like, this is going to be in the, this is going to be in the cinemas and like he gave him a specific date in 1970 something. And, and I was like, okay, so Goldman had, he had like a couple of months to write it. And then like they had mm-hmm. a couple of, like a couple of months to get their cast together and then they were shooting. And Goldman was like, I was person like, it wasn't a studio. This guy was putting up all the money himself. He was, a mm-hmm. fu- uh, your podbot will I'm sure come up with the name of yeah. this producer. A bridge too far was produced and financed by Joseph Levine and Richard P. Levine. The budget was $25 million. Thank you, Bob. Uh, the way he approached um, trying to find the spine of the story was is very interesting. He just, there was so much, so many stories of heroism that he just had to throw out. And he's like, uh, you know, the, the, the highest medal of honor that the, the British give out, there was five of them given out. And there was another one where he was saying something about the, the greatest uh this general saying there's the greatest act of heroism you ever saw where uh, as you're saying well that the, the guys were dropped this bridge but they had to they had to get across the river what their, their plan was they'd send these guys across the river um uh under under cover of fog or under cover of night and then they would uh basically then they would wait there and the second wave would go across and then they would secure both sides of the bridge and they basically, this, the first way went across, everything went wrong, the fog lifted, the Germans saw them, they started cutting them to pieces of machine guns. And Goldman said, oh, so that was the bravest thing you ever saw. No, 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 it wasn't. That was, it was the second wave who saw all this happening and then went over. Wow. And Goldman was like, he, he tried desperately to find a way to get that in there, but he's like, I can't have Robert, what am I going to do with Robert Redford? He's going to like sit on the banks and watch, he's leading the team. He's supposed to like watch yeah. the first um, squadron go across and get cut to pieces and a few of them make it, and then he orders his men to go across. It wouldn't work. I don't know if I agree about that, but it's it's I I'm, I'm, I wasn't there in the room. I'm sure it's a it's one of those real life heroism things. That how do you um, how do you how do you get across that? Because people are used to movie logic, where you know everything has to happen in the moment. You don't have yeah. that ebb and flow. Oh my God, I'm just hearing you say that he had two months to write it. I'm thinking, oh, that's the dream. To write something that you know is going to be shooting in two months? Let me add it. I'm, I'm getting my dates mixed slightly fudged there, but it was a very tight turnaround. He had to do it. and I'm sure. I, I was like, it's amazing. oh, Jesus, for something something of that scale, like, God help you. Yeah. He's kind of one of the... He, he's, he really has... William Goldman has become one of the 
the not godfathers but you know he's definitely a deity in our in this hall of this podcast anyway and episode yeah. one come up so many times but the great thing about many times. world war two you know you think about other war conflicts but with world war two you've got aerial dogfights you've got battles on beaches you've got you know it's other sides of the world where it's you know with the the anzac army you know up against the japanese or it's it's bombings mm. or it's you know, it, it took place everywhere, and there's yeah, something there's, really, you know, I'd say the reason that you can get 500 or, or however many you said movies, thousands, about, thousands, is because there's yeah. so many specific. It's like Star Wars. It's like all these different planets and different battles and different types of battles, yeah. and yeah, it's just uh you could make another thousand, and you wouldn't even cover a fraction of the and stories. Not only that. You can keep recycling. You can tell the you can tell multiple the, the same story or uh, multiple times. We've seen so many um, D Day landing films at this stage, from the longest day to Saving Private Ryan. Yeah. Um, and there's one I want to go to because I I'm, I've got a couple of like you know films that I really want to hit uh, on the road here. I was talking about the kind of the the, the dad movies, right? Mm. But there's a kind of when we went into the 70s, there was a there was a change, you know, that change in the in the mindset, the uh, the more cynical. Obviously, the the world was in a you know, in the midst of the Vietnam War. And as a result, there was a kind of a, a vibe, you know, going through cinema as well. Oh, wait, but I got one, it. I think I got What is it? Is it The Dirty Dozen? Is it The Dirty Dozen? It wasn't. Is it Kelly's Heroes? No, <laughs> I want to talk about Patton. I want to talk uh, about Patton. Uh. That's the one I wanted to talk about. Should have been mentioned and, in monologues and I, I, I didn't have a way to connect it. Should have been mentioned in character intro because <gasps> yes, the the scene I'm going to talk about is the opening of Patton, and it came out in 1970s, directed by the fantastic Franklin Schaffner, Sh- uh, isn't that how you pronounce his surname? Uh, who made Planet of the Apes and this and uh, oh, he had a great run in the early, late 60s, early 70s, and um, how Patton op- Patton's about you know for anyone who doesn't know it's about um, the kind of the tale of um, General Patton he, he basically is like you know the guy who led the, the, the second corps against and defeating Rommel and the European uh, forces but the scene I want to, that I love about this and I should have brought it up in character intro is literally the first scene in the film which was co-written by sorry Kevin who wrote does anyone know who co-wrote Patton? Francis Ford Coppola Jamie, Jamie. Yeah. good man Jamie we need you for all the table and quizzes and Edmund H. Yeah. North I mean there you co-written go. so <laughs> co-written but it is a uh, an introduction where Patton's standing in front of like a big on a platform in front of a big uh, American poster, and he's delivering a speech to what you presume is can, uh, cadets or uh, uh, army officers or whatever. And um, he's introduced he's a scene chewer, but is also introduced by tees where you see like you know his medals and you see just parts of his uh, uniform. But it's a powerhouse of a performance. You see that? I want you to remember that no bastard ever won war by dying for his country. He won it by making the other poor dumb bastard die for his country. And it's mm. uh, a cracking scene. But also, apparently, Patton had a direct influence in uh, in the Vietnam War because 
Nixon apparently loved Patton and he they have a private screening room inside in the White House and when he was in the depths of the Vietnam War wondering what he was going to do to try and you know stop the Viet Cong um he watched Patton was the film that kind of inspired him to to uh, um authorize the 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 bombing of Cambodia and um I think it kind of fueled his uh kind of I suppose war hungry uh, ambitions so yeah, so Patton is a big one. I think, but I think it's a. I think you can read it both ways. It's you can. Some people, warmongers, can kind of think of it as, uh, oh, isn't it a good depiction of like you know a guy who doesn't take no shit and just wants to charge on after the war and just take out Russia while he was over there? But other people can. You can look at it and say, Jesus, he was a monster. So you, I think it's one of those films that could be read from both angles. Yeah, definitely one of the the more cynical war films from World War Two, yeah, and the great absolutely. score by Jerry Goldsmith. Fantastic score! You're absolutely right. Absolutely right. Um, I've never seen Patton beyond that opening scene. Strangely enough, oh, it's worth watching. Oh, yeah, but it's hang worth up, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it's so worth watching. And they're also. It's not all serious though, because there have also been comedies made in World War Two. Like every genre is kind of like you know. Um, tackles you know the, that era of conflict as well so you can get these are all like action adventures almost you know um but you get comedies and comedy ones i'm trying to think hello hello well one That's tv there um, your tv show Dad's army we can't even begin to get into the tv stuff because there's been so much tv fodder made out of this stuff but there's one that you have brought up in season one kevin uh, oh, a on. satire comedy yeah and it came up in might have been monologues actually a uh, World War Two comedy. Oh, Doctor Strangelove. No, no, that's no, the no, no, Cold no. War. It was the ending of uh, Monologues, and it was Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, oh. yeah. But that's yeah. It almost Satter. changes. It almost changes genre by the the speech that I used. So, um, yeah, yeah. But that was right at the you know when it was at the death of that film. But it was uh, again that film came out in nineteen forty. So he was. He, like he was quite prescient that he was on the he was on the pulse of what was happening in the war and um it's a it's you know it's a cool little depiction but also we everyone thinks that Steven Spielberg has made you know two of the greatest World War II films but everyone forgets that he's made uh, uh, well a few, a few more films set during World War II mm-hmm. but he made his famous one of his biggest flops was Empire a World War II 1941 no, oh, Empire of the Sun thanks Jamie 1941 1941 oh that's an big, awful uh, movie <laughs> there we go at least we got the title right this time because I'm one of the yeah. commentaries I said 1941 and you corrected me going no 1942 and I just <laughs> went with yeah. it oh yeah 1942 and I kept thinking that doesn't sound right 1941 if you told me that was Michael Bay's favourite Spielberg movie I would believe you yeah <laughs> have you ever seen Jamie have you ever seen 1941 I I think I have I remember, you remember if you did it's so obnoxious I just I remember Belushi. I remember a stupid joke with a periscope. Yeah, the, the Jaws reference. Yeah, I don't. But I honestly don't. It, it's it's one of those ones that I feel I've seen and it just didn't didn't stick in the memory. You probably have. There's nothing about it that that it it feels like a Saturday Night Live movie almost. Like it's just yeah. a lot of um, sketches. Expensive. One. Oh, very expensive. Like. Bombastic. Yeah. Um, yeah, is that it's it though in terms ones. of comedies for World War Two? Oh, there's well, like if you look at if you look at uh, Life is Beautiful, like Life is Beautiful is that a oh, com- what, what would you awful film. categorize that as? 
No, but what? Well, like I can't, <laughs> I can't you know. But you know, like that has, like you know, it has strong comedic elements. Of course, like obviously. Could I um, mention one that yeah. uh, it's debatable? Tell me if I'm completely wrong. Would you count um, a League of Their Own as a World War Two movie? Ah, yes. Tangentially, because yeah, it's about I think so the women who were left behind and you but know it's still having a to war make the movie. Yeah, because, I mean, war. The thing when the other thing that like kind of stopped me in my tracks when you you mentioned the topic was that I mean it's not just the fact that World War Two is you know a world war, but like if you're telling stories about this, do you tell stories about you know life on the front? Do you tell stories about the resistance? Mm. Do you tell stories about the people back home? Do you tell stories and there's just so many different yeah ways, ways to of, come at it. Yeah, yeah, and it's and everyone was affected by it. Like almost everyone in the world was was affected by this conflict, and all of those stories are potentially not not, not just valid, but there's there's interesting stories in in all those spheres. One would imagine it's almost more that, important nowadays to keep telling those stories because I think we're we're at a point now, as um, I think Angela Merkel said, we're at a dangerous point in um, humanity because those who were around at the time of the war who lived through it are dying off. So we don't have that direct connection to um, World War II. And as soon as that happens, that's when people tend to consign stuff to almost um, irrelevant parts of history that then we fall into a trap of, you know, repeating us, repeating history. I was going to start asking, like, will you, because you've done the afternoon of research on this, but um, mm-hmm. the the difference... Late afternoon. <laughs> sorry, late afternoon. Um, <laughs> yeah. But the difference in the films of people who made it during the war, but people who were making the films after, like I'm thinking specifically of, of say, Samuel Fuller, um, yes. who, were, who actually fought in the conflict, and actors yep. and directors and, and other, other people making it who... We're in it, like in, in Casablanca, like most of the the extras when they were they're filling out the all the, the extra scene, the background. A lot of them were European emigres. The the guy who plays the um, the, the the Nazi officer was was a, was a, a Jewish emigre, if memory serves. I'm sure Pavel will come, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I, I was rewatching that again. Just you're, yeah, you're reminding me as well of a, a book which I just bought and i haven't dug into yet but it's um five came back and it's the the story of how hollywood changed world war ii and um tarantino recommended it on uh a podcast and um i bought that i didn't buy his book but i bought uh (laughs) the book that he recommended written by mark harris um so yeah I, I just wanted to watch the, the Netflix documentary. <laughs> That's instead of just <laughs> reading a book. I think they made it. They made a Netflix. Or they made a documentary about it. It's up on Netflix. Five came back, um, and you're absolutely right. That yeah, the experience of you know, I was going to bring up Sam Fuller's uh, The Big Red Run. Because for me, that was the first war film that moved me as, you know, in my life, moved me from the, the dad movies into the kind of more serious. Uh, there was a there was a, a a darker edge, a more 
not darker, but a more realistic, you know, mm. uh, depiction of how the war affected people and how weird and surreal and awful it was, but also tonally all over the place where, you know, there was a great camaraderie between people and it wasn't all about like, you know, stoic acts of heroism. There were, there were cowards and there was brutality yeah. and there was murder, gruesome murder on both sides. And that was a film like Brig Red Run that was made on a low budget like a really low budget I think it was produced by Roger Corman's brother it was so low budget it wasn't even <laughs> Roger Corman um, but that's another film that uh, had a, uh, a an unofficial director's cut that was like they, they I think it came out in the early 2000s called Big Red One Reconstructed because he had I think he released a novel. Um, he had the intentions to make a, his grand World War II film, but as the budget kept getting slashed on him, he um, so much of his set pieces were just left by the wayside and things were just left in bits and pieces. But they had managed to cobble together something to kind of create this re- this remastered version of the film. I want to see it. But I think he wrote a novelization of the film as well, which included the scenes that were cut. So um, that's a fantastic film starring Mark Hamill, Post Star Wars as well. Mm. It's a it's a cool one. You should watch it if you've never seen it. I found you know doing uh, as much research as I could for this topic that I, it was starting to get a bit heavy um, because mm-hmm. some of the films that I'd avoided watching that I now decided to watch, uh, I avoided them because the subject matter felt like it was going to be um, bleak, and uh, the films didn't disappoint. I watched The Pianist uh, this week for the mm-hmm. first time and. Uh, that is a really harrowing film. There's some imagery in that, um, the Polanski film, which uh, I'd, I'd sooner forget it. It was so horrible. And the thing that uh, I felt that I didn't expect to feel watching it was just angry, really, really angry at these continuous escalations of persecution that the Nazis um, were um, bestowing upon the Jewish population, of which Adrian Brody's family are the ones that we're seeing take the brunt of it. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, we're so lucky that we managed to avoid that point in history. Absolutely. And 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 it's just things like you're talking about going on the bleak route, right? Because yeah. I watched a film last week that was almost going to be my best bit for this topic because it really, it was genuinely... Can't wait to do like, a commentary you know, you, on this one. I know, but no, but like you know, there's the whole basically the the whole horrors of war, which is there's there's the likes of as you just said, the pianist Schindler's List goes into that category yeah. where we get a kind of a, a brutal view on um on you know uh, you know on, on the the concentration camps. But the film that I saw was probably one of the most powerful and disturbing films I've ever watched, and I don't think I want to watch it again. And it almost was my best bit, like at the last minute. And it's um, it's come and see, come and see from 1985. Mm. Did you just so that you just watched that for the first time this week? last week for, and probably okay. a lot of people out there haven't seen don't know what Come and See is because I 
I only became aware of Come and See because I, it appeared on a lot of like best best films ever lists, yeah. right? And all I saw was the title and a weird poster. It has a strange poster where I thought it was like a science, a psychedelic science fiction story or something. Really? But in actual fact, it's a it's a, a, a film made in Belarus about the uh, real accounts of how the Nazis, when they were come, moving through Belarus, they wiped out. 628 villages complete and wiped out the population of those villages in uh, this most horrific they don't experience. pull their punches in that film that's one of those oh. films it's like requiem of a dream for me um it's a one-time watch you'll watch it you'll be grateful that you did watch it because it is beautiful but it's so harrowing and so um so well, it's just so deadening, just the, the cruelty that's on display. I think I've reached the point because I, I think I saw that maybe about 15 years ago or so. Same reckon, for me, actually. Yeah, I reckon I could watch it again now, but it's still beautiful. It's beautiful and horrific at the same time. It's so well Did made. Did you ever see, because um, that chap who directed it, uh, Elin, what's his name? Yeah, Elin uh, Kilimov. Klemov, there you go. He, apparently, he never made a movie after that. Like he'd, he'd no. said, like that's yeah, I did it. That's that's I made the movie. What else? Do I have he to grew say? up. Yeah, he grew up in he grew up in Stalingrad, and he was about he was about eight or nine when that place was burning, and he he had his experiences of that, and it was uh, cemented in his mind, and. What happens to him? He was trying to get this film made for years and years, but he was he kept getting that, was pushed it back state by funded? the government. He was state funded, yeah. yeah. So he had to get approval. He, got, he had to get state approval, but he kept getting pushed back. And uh, I think he's like you know was trying for seven, ten, maybe ten, ten years. I can't remember. But he what motivated him was because he was really concerned about the the, the rise in the Cold War. And he was saying, Jesus Christ, like, you know, people are forgetting how bad that was. And he found this book and the book he found was um, I am from I am from a fiery village, which is uh, a kind of a collection of stories of what happened to to, to, to Belarus and the, the natives of Belarus. Um, so he, he basically made it his mission to say, I have to tell this story. And he shot it in Belarus to hold everything. And he, everyone in it is our natives um, from these villages. And the, he, he, but he, the filmmaking is gorgeous because it's so subjective, gorgeous and horrifying. Like it uses the Steadicam. Thanks, Gareth Brown. Calling back to a single shot from <laughs> season one. It uses a Steadicam to really draw the the viewer into the the into this young teenager's Florian. His name. Um, you see the whole film through the eyes of this young teenage kid who is just th- th- just been thrown into this conflict, and. Um, and literally, they had to, because it's so disturbing, they actually um, did pre-hypnosis on this young fella. He was only 13, the actor, to kind of prepare him for the, the horror of the whole shoot. And um, it really, there's a sequence in there where you basically experience the extermination of a village in real time from his point yeah, of view. Yeah, horrible. Unbelievable. Unbelievable, horror, horrific stuff. The, the Russians make some cracking um, uh, World War Two movies, uh, and there are a lot more. Well, I suppose in keeping. Did with... you Did you guys ever see the film that that guy Elam Klum of his wife? Uh, she made one called The Ascent, uh, also about no. Belarusian uh, or, or um, resistance fighters in, in Belarus. It's 
I, I saw it a lot around about the same time I saw Come and See, um, but it's a much more uh, like sort of twelve angry men, kind of like trapped in a in a, in a kind of room overnight thing. It's it's I, like I need downfall to watch it type thing. Uh, it's if it, it's a long long time, but it's more like sort of. Uh, people getting tr- uh, the, these two resistance fighters going to a village and I think they get kind of there's, there's disturbances they get trapped out most of the film takes I think place when they're sort of like locked up overnight with a bunch of people and they're like sort of arguing what to do because the next morning someone's going to get shot I, I'm probably misremembering this completely but that was it was, I, I was, a, it was a pretty pretty good movie no one no no one alone no. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he did. He he finished one of her. Like she passed away quite young. Yeah, and I think he he helped finish complete one of her films after she I passed away. I think that might have been the ascent. The ascent, I think, was the last okay. thing she did before before her car crash. Um, wow! Oh, it was a car crash. I think God. so. I, I, <laughs> this is such an uplifting episode. It really. Who would have thought? But you know what? <laughs> I want to ask but the thing though, just before is, you move on from that. Will, what was the scene you yeah. were thinking of from "Come and See"? Oh, it's the it's that whole extermination. There's like almost a real time sequence, right? Right. The when they're burning uh, the barn of, or, of or the, village, the church, the barn. Yeah. So yeah. if people haven't seen it, I uh, highly, honestly, I used to, I used to think, oh well, Schindler's List is like you know you're not going to experience any more horrific than Schindler's List or The Pianist. But this is this is no, the, come and the, see the most is, horrific. Come and see on, on a whole different level. Like it's yeah, it's, it's incredible. It's one you have yeah. to watch. It is one you have to watch. And I think it's speaking to the Angela Merkel thing you were saying earlier on. Yeah. It's like everyone should see this because it's a lesson that this stuff happened and uh, we shouldn't forget that. No. But let's all not get into doom and gloom because World War Two also, also had has its been bright like, spots. Bright sides. It was bright sides. It had musical numbers. Escape to victory. <laughs> there we go. Escape to victory. Oh, my God. The cheese. It's nice great. Nice segue. Nice segue. John Houston. But it's also been used, exploited for like horror and sci-fi films galore, because uh, there was I, the, I always say this like the aesthetic of the Nazis were quite was kind of cool. Um, okay, kind of a horrific, call back. They're good bad guys. They're good bad guys. Who designed the World War Two Nazi uniforms? Will we get it right this time? I can't. I never. I was actually thinking about this during the week, and I never looked it uh, up. Do you know who designed the Nazi uniforms, Jamie? By any chance? You mean it's a famous fashion house? I. I actually have no idea. I know. Will I tell you? Oh, oh go on. Hugo Boss. Wow. Was it? Yes. He founded a textile wow. factory in 1923. He joined the Nazi party in 31 and he began manufacturing the Nazi uniforms. There we I go. like his aftershave. <laughs> Not anymore. It, throw, it smells like it smells like fascism now. Throwing throw, throw like all that away. I, I want to take us into the kind of the more fantastical fun stuff well you know gory fun stuff the sci-fi horror genre and there's been plenty of sci-fi horror films made around World War 2 one that I really like and I really like the soundtrack of is Michael Mann's The Keep oh, have you seen that? Yes. Oh my god, I've seen half of that as a kid and it freaked me the fuck out. Yeah, I saw it's good. I saw this when 
remember the first 20 minutes when I was a kid, when I was like 10 or something, and I thought it was the most incredible opening for a movie I'd ever seen. Isn't that all you're supposed to see of that film? Isn't it something where it's like it's half a great film and then it goes off the it, rails? It, it, I yeah. Okay, so I saw the good part then. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. A friend gave me a copy of it years later, and I'd read the, I'd, like, I bought the book and, and read that because I was just, I got obsessed with this movie, like seeing the keep, because this, this, the opening is so strong. The soundtrack, yeah. the casting. Uh, just the way it's 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 a very cool looking fucking movie. Great opening. All these Nazis yeah. pulling up to this like like basically moving into a Dracula movie. And uh, but then yeah, it does kind of go off the rails off the rails like in the second half. Yeah. What about Jamie? You're, go on. You're absolutely you're absolutely after Jamie. You're absolutely right. Watch go on YouTube and watch the opening credits on YouTube with that soundtrack and imagine. And, and someone out there, some aspiring filmmaker out there, take that opening uh, uh, title uh, credit sequence and make the rest of that film the way it should be made because uh, it's class. It really is class. It's dirty. It's gritty. Class soundtrack. Yeah, I love it. Kevin, what were you going to say? Captain America. The rest of the world is just codenamed Captain America. And the power to save millions. The Jerry's have an experimental rocket ready to fire at a target somewhere in the United States. Only he could defeat a superhuman madman. They got a fellow called the Red Skull heading up there out there. I love me my Marvel movies. And I love <laughs> Captain America. Listen, you know, let's not disparage. I enjoy Marvel. Marvel's good crack, you know. That's um, bad. But yeah, you're right. <laughs> I can't <Avengers. laughs> I'll go Hellboy. I think Hellboy, Hellboy's fun. Hellboy was, uh, yeah. did, did some fun Would with that, you so. count Inglourious Bastards as a sci-fi movie? Because that is just rewriting history. And it is a romp. That is a blast of a movie. My name is Lieutenant Aldo Ray. And I need me eight soldiers. We're gonna be dropped into France, dressed as civilians. We're gonna be doing one thing, one thing only. Killing Nazis. Yes! I was I had a whole rant to go off because <gasps> oh, Rant away, Jimmy. Well look this I I was re reading the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood uh, novelization that Tarantino did. And it's, he it's, will I kick can't... your head in if you say it's a novelization. Uh, sorry, it's uh, anyway no. What is well, it? It's a novel. What does he call it? He calls it a novel. It's a novel. Fine, it's a novel. It's like it feels like okay. bits and pieces of when he was writing the thing, and it's it's very enjoyable. Um, but it reminded me when I saw and spoiler warnings for both Glorious Bastards and for Once Upon a Time. Yeah, we should probably Hollywood. start getting into the habit of doing spoiler warnings on this podcast. <laughs> we just spoil the shit out of films. Everything. The the ending of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is it's centers on the, the Manson murders, except in this case, the Manson cult people run into Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio and get murdered. Uh -huh. And it's a happy ending for the, for the uh, Sharon Tate and, and yeah. Polanski. And uh, I remember reading at the time a review in I, I, one of the big Hollywood, Hollywood reporters, something like this, or, or Entertainment Weekly. And the reviewer had this line in it where he was like, sure, he was really annoyed, offended by this ending and the fact that he twisted, you know, changed the, the, what had happened. But his, his, the thing that annoyed me, that he was like, I mean, sure, in Inglorious Bastards, um, you know, Brad Pitt's uh, paratroopers, the squad, like, you know, killed Hitler. But I mean, 
didn't the Americans, you know, they did defeat the Germans anyway. And I was like, yeah, but they didn't defeat him in 1944 when like, Mm. you know, leaving like millions of people died in the concentration camps after that. And it felt, it it just was like, and I I liked, really liked Inglorious Bastards, but that ending always felt me like, I don't know, if it hadn't been Hitler, if it had been some random uh, if it had Nazi been Landa, general. if it had been Landa, or mm. or you know, or someone like that, and it, you could have fallen to like the kind of Kelly's Heroes, Dirty Dozen kind of thing, which is you felt was like a lot of the influences. But because it was Hitler, I, it just sort of like threw me as like, oh, okay, so it's an alternate, yeah, Nazi yeah, kind of thing. And it's ballsy. It's ballsy, and some people are saying, "Well, this is Tarantino making fun of the fact that." Um, you know, uh, the, you know, the Americans always, they, well, they, they rewrite history in, in these sort of things. Mm. And he would go, well, if I'm going to read history, I'm going to rewrite it like the way it should have been. But, you know, we forget that um, a lot of people outside of, say, Europe, America, possibly Asia might have the in-depth knowledge of, like, who Hitler was, for example. Oh, I get you, I get you. And, mm-hmm. you know, someone say some remote island in, in the Pacific might say, say what you're watching this, like as a, as a teenager, a kid and it's like, Oh, okay. Well, that was, that's this guy, Hitler. I don't know much about it, but that's how he died. I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe Tarantino propagating fake news. <laughs> it just is. It, I, I don't know why I, I, I like that movie. Jamie, can I just say, yeah. can you rant, uh, just into voice memo and send it to me every night because it's the most, it's like ASMR right here. I'm just, <laughs> you're chilling me the fuck out. <laughs> the most chilled out rants you're ever going to hear. Yeah. I, I tell you, like, I, 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 I'm on the opposite. When it comes to, I know I don't want, it's, it's off World War II topic, but uh, Once Upon a Donut a Time in Hollywood, I loved it. I loved it as well. I'm, I found it I loved, really I loved it. sweet and, and earnest, and it just made you think, fuck's sake if only if only i felt it i felt for me what it did was it re it reclaimed uh um, it gave her back her dignity um, sharon tates yeah it reclaimed her her end her yeah. life it, it re is instead of uh, for in in my if whenever i hear sharon tate up to that film i used to think oh my god that awful ending that poor yeah woman defined had, by than what was what perpetrated mm. against exactly her. upon yeah. her again against her and in this film all of a sudden now when i think of uh sharon tate i go oh wouldn't that be such a lovely ending for her and i think of uh margot robbie i think of that fun space mm. and i don't i actually don't wasn't think solely of the poisoned murder. by Despicable. Yeah, I felt he reclaimed. Yeah. yeah, he gave her, he he gave her spirit, uh, life. He, he reclaimed it from Manson and I uh, and those awful decades. Feel that like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is almost like a companion piece to Jackie Brown in in terms of it just having a sweetness ah. to it that none of the other, yeah. um, even though it gets you know they both they both have their wacky violence and he really goes for it in in both films, but um, yeah, there's a, there's a sweetness to both those films. The novel yeah. does have a big Elmore Leonard feel to it and parts of it, I thought. I, I enjoyed it. And I, I enjoyed the movie too. Like the ending didn't I think maybe because of Inglorious Bastards, I was keyed up to expect it. I love uh, all his films. Mm-hmm. And I know that uh it, it's quite um fun for people to um 
take him down a peg or two because he is a bit of a, a blowhard. But I, I just love him and I hope he doesn't retire after his next film. I hope he just keeps going and because um, I'm I'm in the camp of uh, Tarantino can do very little wrong in my eyes in terms of his actual f- films. Um, now the thing about it is, if one wants to think of this movie as a fairy tale or a fantasia, you're welcome to feel feel free. That's not really exactly where I'm coming from on it. Um, where I'm coming from is this: in the course of my story. My characters change the course of the war. Now, that didn't happen because my characters didn't exist. But if they had have existed, everything that happens is fairly plausible. Oh, yes, 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 yes. If there had been a Frederick Zoller who did what he did at that time in the war, I'm sure Goebbels would have made a movie about him, the way uh, America made a movie about Audie Murphy. And if Frederick Zoller looked like Daniel Bruhl and was as charming, then he could have been cast as the lead, and then they could very well have had a big premiere, and so on and so on and so on. Now, can I steer us back into World War II, please? Wouldn't that be great? Uh, I suppose. <laughs> Kevin, Kevin's enthusiasm for this topic. Imagine if you got this topic and the spin in the wheel, Kevin. Oh my God, what would have, what this episode? episode I would have like? turned it into sort of like a, <laughs> a an air raid where there would just be like bombs dropping around me and and uh, I'd be trying to crack codes and oh yeah, like, you know. <laughs> I want to rattle out right. Oh, well, actually, okay, there was the Rocketeer. That was a fun sci-fi Love action it. adventure film. Wasn't that Love fun? It. Wasn't that fun? So I'm lifting up. Of course, Indiana, Indiana Jones, Jones. Is, is absolutely connected to these things, but I shall not get into it. Love um, it. There's I, there's one I have to mention, and it's an, the most obvious choice, but this is not my pick. I've got My pick is going to come after this before I ask Jamie what his pick will be, right? I have to have to mention um, Saving Private Ryan. Colonel, I've got something you should know about. Yes. These two men died in Normandy. This one at Omaha Beach. Sean Ryan. This one in Utah. Peter Ryan. This man was killed last week in New Guinea. Daniel Ryan. The three men are brothers, sir. I've just learned that this afternoon their mother is getting all three telegrams. That's not all. There's a fourth brother, the youngest. He's somewhere in Normandy. We don't know where. That boy's alive. We're going to send somebody to find him. And we're going to get him the hell out of there. Some private... Um, Spielberg's film came out in 98 um, and that Omaha Beach sequence at the very mm-hmm. beginning because how you know up to that point uh, World War II as you, we already mentioned kind of in western cinema World War II films kind of went out of vogue once the Vietnam movies kicked in mm-hmm. and uh, that lasted to the mid 90s or kind of up into the early 90s anyway and it wasn't until like Sim Private Ryan came out as all of a sudden World War II became hot again and I have to say, that opening sequence and what they achieved was shot in. Where did they shoot that? And was it Wexford? Uh, it was it I thought Wexford. it was Galway, somewhere along. No, no it, was, it was on the East Coast. Jamie, oh. uh, I know. I think you're right. I think it was Wexford. Or, yeah, it was Wexford. I'm going to say Wexford. So there, and hey, people say Ireland wasn't involved in the, in the war. The D-Day landings happened in Ireland. <laughs> and there's, all those guys in that soldiers were Irish army extras. And that's a fact. So you know. So there we go. Oh, um, can I? Can I? Can I? Can I just mention a film that um, I didn't really give my pick, and I don't actually know what scene I would pick, but a film that we haven't mentioned that I think is 
beautiful and uh it, it's another side of the conflict um it's on the 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 japanese front but it's the thin red line in this world a man himself is nothing and there ain't no world but this one i've seen another world sometimes i think it was just my imagination I go first, I'll wait for you there. On the other side of the dark waters. Why should I be afraid to die? I belong to you. We're going straight up that hill there. How many men do you think it's worth? How many lives? There's nowhere we can hide. I was just about to mention. Oh my god. I yeah. keep doing this to you. I, was just I keep treading No, but this toes. is good. No, you're not treading my toes. No, it's, it's not sorry. my pick. It's not my pick. I'll I was going, No, no. <laughs> but isn't it funny? It came out the same year as it came out in 98, yeah. the same year as Saving Private Ryan. And what I think Saving Private Ryan did, I kind of think, Jesus, consequences wise, it influenced video games. It influenced how action scenes were filmed from that point on to strip back overly chaotic uh, you know yeah the speed uh, you know, ramp not speed ramp that, um, yeah that shutter speed the yeah. over crank shutter speed thing that they did for that which you did not you know we didn't see that Leech in films bypass before Saving well. Private Ryan that's the one That was that his first collaboration with Yanis Kaminsky as well the, no I think it was Schindler's List oh was that the first time okay um, but then yeah The Thin Red Line came out the same year but like a totally polar opposite approach to the aesthetic where um, we talked about Adrian Brody earlier on or I did with the pianist and did you ever hear a story about Adrian Brody with the thin red line no so Adrian Brody was the lead of that movie it was all focused right. on his character and Terence Malick has a way of just shooting you know excessive amounts of, of uh, footage and then assembling the film in the edit and Adrian Brody this was recounted by George Clooney on one of those round table uh, things uh, a few years back Adrian Brody went to the premiere of The Thin Red Line believing he was um, still the lead of the movie and he sat there and watched it and he had maybe 15 seconds of screen time. He had been completely cut out of the film and it had all been refocused on Jim Caviezel. Oh my God. (laughs) Imagine that. Imagine just, you know, you're rocking up to the premiere and you've been cut out of the film and no one's told you. Oh man. Oh man, that would just hurt so. Film much. is great though. It would hurt. Jeez, it's a beautiful, and I love in that. I love the. There's a kind of a, a montage sequence where an attack happens on the on the American guys, and the music is gorgeous. I love the score of the Thin Red Line. I think it's absolutely beautiful. beautiful. What about Pearl Harbor's and music? You know. I, that was going to be my best pick. You stepped on my toes again. <laughs> no, it wasn't. I, I know you're, you're lying now. <laughs> Jamie, do you have any thought, any opinion on either the same Private Ryan or the Thin Red I, Line? I do. I have too many opinions. Okay. My, uh, the one with Seven Private Ryan is that I saw it relatively like a couple of years ago. Really? And, uh, well, I mean, I saw it when it first came out. I saw it oh, right, right, since, right. but then I saw it again. And I was like, yeah, that that opening beach sequence is is pretty fucking great. Mm. But mm-hmm. um, it does, I don't, it's it's kind of like, because I, I, you think of those two movies, for some reason, they always get like put together back, back to back. Because like they spent 20 years trying to get Malik to make the Thin Red Line. Mm. And then they finally get it through with this huge cast 
and then Spielberg basically comes out with um, that. With the Silver definitive Man. World War Two movie for that era. A few months earlier, and yet I don't. I think the Thin Red Line is going to have a longer impact. Um, like it did. Mm-hmm. I my memory of, of that was I I just I was in college and I just discovered how I could sort of manipulate press screenings because I would I would call up the PR people and say like I'm yeah I'm with a college paper. Because you used I, to be a critic as well, didn't you? You used to write film uh, um, reviews. I did. I wrote. Um, I was. When I was in college. I was sort of. I started writing stuff with like the event guide in Dublin. Mm. But I would. I would basically bunk off a lot of mornings in college, and go see press screenings. And I think the Thin Red Line, because you go see press screenings like half ten on a Friday morning, going into like screen one of the Savoy in Dublin, and the cinema's like mostly empty apart from critics, of which there are like maybe like maybe a dozen, two dozen, in there. And mm-hmm. I, I, a couple of friends had come along with me, and uh, including some Brendan O'Brien. He's a sports journalist now. You think he's he's actually in, I think he's in Tokyo right now doing the, the Olympics. And what what sport? <laughs> he's co- <laughs> very good. Uh, he's he's uh, <laughs> he's, cover, he's covering the, the the Olympics anyway. But, sorry, yeah. uh, he he had read. He was a big fan of the book, the James Jones book, and I remember. I watched right. that movie and I was just like in a entranced. I'd, I'd never really seen anything quite like it before. It's like but eighteen, nineteen or something. And the movie, you know, the lights came up and uh, at the guys around me were just like fuming. They were just like fucking hated it. And it was like, I hope oh. the fucker takes another twenty years to make a movie because like that was. <laughs> and I was How like, could you hate that film? Why? Why did they hate I it? Think, what was the kind of the I idea? Think, uh, I think maybe it was just. Well, it's it's. I suppose if you're a, f- a fan of the book, the guy James Jones oh, also right, wrote right. Yeah. from here to eternity, and it's and, and okay. it is the book does say focus more on the Adrian Brody character, and it but it, it's got more of a spine to it. It's more like a traditional. It's not, not as elliptical. Quite, it's not. No, it's it's very much like a lot of the stuff. Malik kind of took his own thing around with. It. I was entranced with it, and mm-hmm. that's when, the perfect way to describe that film. It's, an, it's yeah, yeah. I, I watched it just again because I hadn't seen it in about 10, 15 years and I was certain that was going to be my pick. And mm. then I kind of, and I blurted it out earlier in, in, a, in, a, in a group text to you. Uh, but then I, was like, <laughs> I, I should, I really need to rewatch it and watching mm-hmm. it again on my like little 13 inch laptop with, you know, a shitty sound. And it started, I was like, I can't hear every second word, but by the end of it, I just, again, was, as you say, entranced. It's a very it's like a waking dream. Yeah, and it's it's not a it's it's yeah. it doesn't go into the it, it has its like my my best moment from that, and I've got a couple, but probably I think the attack on the hill, where mm-hmm. the yeah. two guys are they're they're scouting they 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 know there's like this Japanese up on top of this fucking hill, and like they're you know Jared Leto is like one of the many like blinking you'll miss it famous faces like okay go Jared Leto like, go go up there Jared Leto take not a reason I love it. Yeah, and he's like he tells his two guys to, to go up the hill, and they're just like it's this amazing. The hill is just like all this long, waving green grass, and the guys are just like walking. They know there's something wrong, but it just looks so beautiful and so peaceful. And suddenly, just this like they're walking, and they're just like shot and fall down dead. And then Jared Leto is sort of like, "Oh fuck!" But I have to order the rest of these guys to go up. And so they all do this charge, and they all get like they're all getting slaughtered, but. It's that moment when the two guys 
like it mowed down, and then it just cuts to like the the clouds pass over the sun, and you just see the shadow go over these these shimmering over these glass the grass. It's so peaceful, but also just you just don't know what's there. And I, it's it's a, it's an entrancing. There's a lot of entrancing movies and bits in that movie, but you know, that's one that kind of like stuck in my head. juxtaposition in that film is always the juxtaposition of nature and this yeah. war machine yeah it's that and it makes a point of like i always remember there's a shot in my head of these of the column of soldiers walking through the, the tall kind of like grass and a native just walks by him and the native guy doesn't even look them in the eye he walks by them as if these soldiers don't even exist you know and um and there's yeah there's, there's this yeah it's a real juxtaposition of this thing that's happening but it's kind of like ultimately inconsequential to nature because nature's just going to keep doing its thing you know you, you'll kill yourselves and we'll, we'll still be here yeah I, I, I think I say this every week and it's going to be in a slogan on a t-shirt someday literally I really want to watch that <laughs> not that <laughs> word it's, it's I really want to watch that film again now and I love that film and I feel there's more to chew uh, uh, in the thin red line or more there's more sustenance in the thin red line than there is in Saving Private Ryan um, Saving Private Ryan fueled video games and fueled, um, I think, gung honus that kind of like uh, jingoistic, you know, patriotism and whatnot. But Thin Red Line is more meditative and um, really gorgeous. Uh, it's lovely. Who are we? Three fellas on a podcast dismissing Saving Private Ryan, the audacity. <laughs> They're tank busters, sir, P-51s. So before we get into Jamie's pick, I'll quickly, quickly do my pick, right? And my pick, um, Kevin, like, you've, uh, you know, listen, fair play to you. You stood on my toes about half an hour ago. Um, it's it's from Dad's Boat, or Dad's Boot, as they call it. And um, told you, Das Boot, Das Boat is an amazing film. It's about a submarine, a U-boat submarine crew who uh, gets this kind of is sent out on a mission, and it's not really kind of a crazy mission, just sent out on a normal, regular mission. But um, it's amazing. It's so claustrophobic. Um, the it's uh, three and a half hours long, but you do not feel that time ticking by. It is absolutely so intense and uh riveting and what i love about that 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 film okay this, there's a sequence in it the sequence i love in it my best bit in that does boat is the kind of like the the the, the midpoint kind of like big uh, point where the u-boat has tracked down a convoy um an allied kind of convoy and they've successfully torpedoed a couple of ships and there's this immediate elation amongst the crew of these young lads. And they're so overwhelmed and overjoyed. But immediately they, they see a destroyer coming for them and, the, and they sink. And they go from being the hunter to immediately the hunted. And what happens after that 
is as is the most tense sequence of seeing these lads stuck these young lads stuck in a tin can get bombarded and uh, and and just pummeled and they get you know almost cursed and you, you feel they're almost dead and they sink to the bottom of the ocean and as they go lower and lower and lower the tension builds and builds and even the 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 the, the, the submarine itself starts to pop the, the bolts and they're like bullets going off inside in the inside in the thing the chief mechanic goes kind of you know loses it loses it and starts threatening to shoot himself or you know just open the open the doors and all this it is so tense but what I love about this film is that it's philosophy it's not a dad movie because it's not going isn't war jolly because it's certainly not jolly it's horrific it's it's anti-war it's almost the these young so- sailors are you can see they've become tired with the rhetoric or the the kind of the the Nazi, um, I suppose, ideology, and just they've become tired of war. Um, but there's a line in there. There's a war correspondent in there. We kind of we're in this this young lad's shoes as he's kind of like um, basically just following along, going on this mission. He was going to write a piece about it after the fact, but he has a line in it which I think he describes war as a place where cruelty and grandeur reigns. And I went, wow. And I think that in my head, I went, yeah, that's what war movies are. It's the depiction of the, the grandeur of the mechanics and the cruelty of what we're doing to each other. That is a superb quote. Yeah. So that's my um, best World War Two scene pick. It's from Daz Boat, 1981. Watch it. But Jamie, I want to know, seeing as you are a special guest this <laughs> week, what, if you had to think about this, what would your best World War Two scene pick uh... be? Well, I was also flip-flopping because the Thin Red Line is looming very large in my head. Um, also, Casablanca was sort of at oh. the back because I, I just I adore that movie. And it's um, the idea of someone kind of like just being... Dra- the whole movie is really about America being dragged into the war through Humphrey Bogart's character. Mm. But um, the movie I'm going to go with... or the Drum movie, roll. ...is... <laughs> It's a British movie from the, I think it's 1956 that I watched oh. on the TV when I was like a, a teenager or something. I probably probably may have watched it with my dad, called The Man Who Never Was. It's the most outrageous, disgusting, preposterous, not to say barbaric idea. The strangest spy story in the annals of naval intelligence. This is the man who created the man who never was. You wave an airy hand and say, George, go and get a body, as though there was nothing to it. Well, you try. Nonsense. There are hospitals, nursing homes, mortuaries. I've tried them, not a hope. You see, Monty, everybody belongs to somebody. And it isn't a thing people want messed about. This is the traitor who tried to expose the man who never was. Good evening. Yes, what do you want? I'm making some inquiries about a friend of mine, William Martin. This is the girl who held the secret of the man who never was. Lucy, this is Mr. Patrick O'Reilly. Hello there. Mr. O'Reilly is making inquiries about Willie Martin. Willie Martin? Willie Martin? It's no good making inquiries about him, mister. Willie Martin doesn't exist. This is a true story. It actually happened, but it could not be told until now. And it is about um, Operation Mincemeat 
and this story was about this uh, British general had the idea they're going to basically take a dead body, dress him up like a British officer, give him fake papers saying that the British intend to invade Sardinia and Greece instead of what their plan was to invade Sicily. And they're going to drop this guy into the water. They find a body guy died of pneumonia. And they are going to drop him in the water off the coast of Spain. And the currents will take him in. The Spanish, like, sympathetic to the Germans, basically sent this body and the information on it. And that the Germans would change their plans accordingly and put all their defenses into um, Sardinia and Greece. And... I, I just, this is a, it's a, uh, I, ha, I was trying to rewatch it again, um, but I, I was unable to find it sort of on. You won the BAFTA that year. Uh, yeah, it's a, the, the so thing about. The script. The, the, the thing about it is the, is that the, it's, it's all about process. Mm-hmm. And basically you run through this whole thing of like the guys like, well, how do you get a body? And that's all this, this sort of. I don't want to say fun, but it's basically like the, the, the coroner basically goes, you think it's an easy job. Like he goes, oh, you know, we've got hundreds of bodies, but they all have people, they all belong to people. And I can't just give a body out to be used in this way. And of course it has to be top secret. Like the Germans have to believe that this is a real person, the man who never was, and that these plans are real. But the, the thing of it is that if this, this goes ahead and the, the Germans take these plans and they, they, some of the some of the the, the head of the, the German army there was is, is suspicious, and he's like, I don't want to act on this. Hitler thinks it's genuine, but this this head of the German army thinks no. I want to investigate this, so they basically send a spy to London to dig into the um, the background and see if this is real, if this man is real, if these plans are real, and if memory serves, it's actually an, an Irish an IRA <laughs> an IRA guy who is in. Uh, I, this part is probably invented. Um, okay. as, as regards to there being a spy, but this is kind of what I like about it because it just—it's it's this people trying to survive history. They're, they're not the—it's not the Winston Churchills. It's not the Hitlers. Mm-hmm. You, you're not as a screenwriter. You're not trying to invent reasons why they did the things they did. And the the second half of this movie is this this guy who is ostensibly a bad guy, but he's basically trying to figure out basically if this is real, and he's sending it a send a report back to the Germans. And he's sort of making, he's visiting like what this guy's uh, widow was. And I, I can't exactly remember how this sort of happens, but he sort of becomes pretty convinced that this guy was real and that this woman whose uh, husband or, or boyfriend had been killed recently is genuine. And he's like, I'm go- yeah, I, I think it's true. He sends his, sends his message back to the German authorities, but I just need to check. And at this point that the, the British authorities are onto him. And they're sending police to arrest him. And but this IRA guy is going, if I don't radio back within the hour, then assume that it's fake, and I'll be arrested. Mm-hmm. And so there's this great weird tension of this guy going out trying to make this investigation, and then the police going to invest. And you know that if they arrest him, basically, and you, I mean, you know what happens. It's you know the we uh, the Allies won mm-hmm. the war, but there's this great tension, and you're not really sure. You're like I kind of. This guy's kind of charming, but he's obviously the bad guy. And I don't really want him to win, but I'm kind of interested in whether he's going to figure this out or are they going to arrest him? And if it's, if there's just a lot of different complicated parts um, of, of differing tension, different types of tension at, at play there. And as, I remember watching this when I was younger and just going, that's a really 
just because I, I don't really know where I'm, what I'm supposed to feel here. I'm just, I'm yeah. tense. I'm, I, I want to see what happens next, but I just don't know how it's going to play out. I don't know how I'm going to feel whether or not it plays out. So that's 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 kind of my wow. what, I've not seen that. What film. was the name, Jamie? What was the name of the film again? The man who never. The was. man who never was. It was directed by Ronald Neem, who also directed the Poseidon Adventure. Wow. So there you go. Okay. That's one that I need to know. Seek out after this and watch. I love it. Um, I yeah. I I love when when I have nothing to say. But no, it's but I I love it when it's just like basically it's just not us mirroring each other and kind of like yeah I know that film we we were in the cinema together when we were eight. Um, but no, that's really cool, Jamie. That's after you put something totally I didn't even know it existed, and um, you've made a compelling uh, case there. Loved it, Jamie. Thanks, man. Okay, well, Jamie, listen, it has been fantastic having you on, and I love getting your insights on World War II movies. I, 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 listen, watch Pilgrimage if you haven't seen it, and I'm also looking forward to Jamie's upcoming new uh, movie, The Damned, which sounds damn exciting, Jamie. What's that about? Thank you. The Damned is uh, set in 19th It's a rom-com. <laughs> it's a rom-com, yeah. That's, that's kind of all I get hired to do, is do rom-coms. It's, it's a historical uh, film. Yeah, 19th century Iceland, isolated village. A, they're basically cut off for the winter, and a ship, while they're like sort of like rationing out their food, and a ship gets shipwrecked off the, uh, just off the, off the um, Coast. fjord. Yeah, off the coast, yeah. and they have to make this decision on whether or not to um, rescue them, and then, like you know, uh, risk their own uh, remaining food. Class, and that's about as I think. I think it's about as much as I, that's, I think that's what the press release has already said. So I, I, I don't. I think I, this is. I, I'm safe in saying that. It sounds hilarious. I can't wait. It is a. It is a laugh out loud. <laughs> Um, fun time giggle run <laughs> oh, yeah. man. well I'm looking forward to it Jamie um, so I've given you the wheel Jamie and uh, okay. all you gotta do just open up the app and just spin it and hit me with something okay. completely random and weirdly specific okay I am I'm spinning the wheel spinning spinning it's usually very loud in the ears isn't it yeah it is not so bad for me this week Okay. Okay. What would you like to hear? <laughs> the truth. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, well, you have kid protagonist, so I don't know what you can... Best kid protagonist scene, Kevin. Um, Does yeah. that work for you, Kevin? Do you, do that, you think you can work with that? I can work with anything. Kid protagonist. Okay. Um... The, immediately the one that comes to Wolf mind is the one I'm not going to mention just there we go Wolf Walkers <laughs> <laughs> so just in case it comes up next week I was going to say Sonic of the Sea oh no I won't go that way um, Pilgrimage Tom Brothers. Holland is a kid in that isn't he uh, yes he was I think he just turned 18 during during filming so still a so child he was pre pre Spider-Man was he was he he was was he working with you pre Spider-Man he did he the first week he was at the he said he needed to go back to London for an audition. It was down between him and two other actors for a part. And he didn't want to say what it was. Huffing go on, it's for Spider Man. Like, All right, and then he went on the very last day of shooting. We were having a rap party. He had to get a flight to 
uh, Atlanta to do a screen test with Robert Downey Jr. Oh, wow. 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 Um, was he on set while you were shooting? Was he flipping all over the place, like doing cartwheels and bouncing? And- he was. He was. It was quite nerve-wracking because, like, the, the week before your before the first week of shooting, he was posting videos of himself doing, like, like these backflips <laughs> on top of a mountain where we in in the West and... I was. I think everyone's just like, "Oh my god, he's just gonna fucking break his neck or crack an ankle." <laughs> we're like, he's in every fucking scene. Like, we'll think of my script, you bastard. Yeah, but I, uh, I think he, he didn't. Thank God. <laughs> we're okay. very grateful for that. Well, yeah. cheers, Jamie and kid protagonist. Next, Next week, I suppose, uh, my brothers. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, that's a deep cut, Jamie. Thanks so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. thank you for having me, guys. Absolute pleasure. It's- a lot of fun, a lot of fun. Oh man, it was great. Oh. Jamie, can you can you wish everybody um, a good night and to uh, sleep tight and do it in your <laughs> lovely, you know, uh, okay. m- mellifluous voice? Oh, mellifluous, like, good night, sleep tight. And remember, no, actually I don't have a, I was going to think of some, some calming words there at the end, but I don't have any, so. Don't just, let uh, the bed bugs bite. Jesus Christ. Yeah, <laughs> just, just close your eyes. Just close your eyes. And don't you think about nipples. <laughs> oh, Jimmy. Good night, everyone. I'm happy with that. And follow us on a Twitter thing. Do a Twitter handle and uh, oh, yes. like uh, and At whatever. Best Bits Pod. Do your likes. And LinkedIn and Facebook and, um, uh, yeah. Cheer. And recommend us. Five stars. Five stars. Cheers. <laughs> Love you. Thanks, Jamie. I'm going to go and have a nap now. The Best Bits Podcast is produced by Will and Kevin. All audio clips and music heard in this episode is the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, subscribe, rate, review, all that good stuff. If you have any notes, comments, scene suggestions, or just want to get in touch with us, email us at bestbitspodcast at gmail.com. And here is a clip from the lad's latest mini bits bonus show, the full episode plus 100 more, are available on their Patreon. The best bits with Will and Kevin. No, the best bits with Kevin and Will and... With the films and the, with the TV and the latest films. Something, something, something. something. Um, don't forget that you owe us three euro. Okay. <laughs> you can't you throw what? <laughs> oh, my God. I, I did a whole Irish theme. The best bits with Kevin and Will and Talking TV and the latest... Okay, right. I'm gonna find the fucking thing because it's gonna be the music to start the episode. I don't think I've heard this. You have. Well, maybe you haven't. I don't think I have heard this. I do. I suspect that what you do is you just put the laugh and emoji thing and think I listen to that some other time. Fuck it, that'll do. Because it's bound to be funny in his eyes. So yeah. I'll just tell him what he wants to hear. I actually only laugh the emoji when I've actually listened. <laughs> I should have taken the hint that nobody was responding to the Podbot one. Like, nobody was giving me any reaction to it. And oh. I thought, they hadn't listened to it yet. And then, of yeah. course, I was delighted with that. And people hated it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, it, was, it, was, it wasn't easy on the ears in, a, in the sense that it was just her monotone voice. So there was no up and down. That's the thing. Yeah, I know. I tried my best. You're a bug and I'm a feature. Pray to this mantis or I'll eat you. And if you don't know my name, here's an update to teach you. I'm, I'm, I'm Hogwarts and I'm the future. An AI podcasting computer. The number one zero one zero zero one one producer. I'm a psycho yeah, That's exactly what you did, you do. So. Don't forget, now you owe us three euro. 
I come off the stage. Not, I've not, I've, I've not heard this. I swear to God, I'm going to send it to you right now, and you can get a genuine reaction. I'll actually listen to it. So I'm, I have my WhatsApp open. <laughs> That's genuinely my first time hearing that. <laughs> I just could easily have just scrubbed it from my memory. That's the other thing that could happen. How do you operate? I, 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 I generally just go on impulses. So if I need to toilet, I just toilet. And does, I do, that doesn't necessarily mean I need to be Squat, in the proximity like a of, of a toilet. Yeah, so I'm saying, you just go. I just nappy it, Kevin. I just man, I just adult nappy it. Oh, we've got loads to talk about. Um, I've watched a load of things. So have I. But I think I should get one thing off my chest straight away because I think the discourse out there sometimes can feel really artificial to me and it can feel like people will films to be worse than they are in order to have something to point at and ridicule and sort of create content about. Should I start the timer? Have we just started? Start the timer because I'm raring to go. I saw Madam Web. Right. I honestly, guys, know nothing. All I all I know is I saw a poster oh, very recently. It went, there's a Madam Web film, and I'm what is this? So it's a Spider Verse adjacent Marvel movie. Yeah, it's it's one of these Sony things where they did Venom and they're doing Craven the Hunter, okay. and it's sort of an offshoot of the Spider Man movies. But I don't right. know what universe they're in because they're trying to blend them all together. So is this the Tobey Maguire Spider-Verse? To me, it feels like it's in that space. Mm. Anyway, I thought I'm done with superhero movies. I'm just over them. I watched Captain Marvel not re- long ago and I thought it was just tedious. It's so lifeless. The Marvels, not Captain Marvel. Is that what Marvel's, well, yeah. she's in it, Captain Marvel. Captain yeah. Marvel 2. It was just sort of like, it was another one of those films that felt like Ant-Man in that everything was chemical and synthetic and fake and Mm -hmm. airless. And, you know, you just have sound stage after sound stage. And I just feel profoundly depressed watching those films. I feel like Uh, there's nothing organic happening in these. From the lines of dialogue to the hairstyles to the costumes to the sets to the music to everything just feels it's artificial wafer thin just wafery artificially no sustenance no satisfaction you know protein in it whatsoever you feel like oh wow I just I just put something down my throat and I'm still hungry it feels like eating plastic okay on the whole it's just drifted so far away from what Iron Man was that I just don't care about them yet I found The Flash really fun because it was it felt like a Bill and Ted type movie at times. It was off the wall bonkers and I don't really particularly give a shit about special effects. Whether they're good or bad, you know, I can buy into it because of the ideas behind it or the concepts behind it. So I wasn't like revolted by the, the special effects of The Flash. I just thought, you know, it's mm. funny to see babies falling out of windows and being put into microwaves and things like that. So I went into Madame Web not really giving a fuck about the genre but I wanted to see it for the sake of having an opinion on it and the trailer was awful it had that terrible line reading in it from the Dakota Johnson where she's she's shitting out exposition and I think people had the film's cards marked at that stage and uh, the film itself to me played like a Final Destination action thriller and I thought it was really pleasant it didn't bother me in the slightest I didn't have any of the issues that everybody else has it was 
uh, a reluctant hero with no superpowers whatsoever other than having premonitions, trying to keep three teenage girls alive against somebody who's like the evil version of Spider-Man who wants to murder them. And they just played it out in a very cinematic way where it felt like a Sam Raimi type Spider-Man. It looked as good as that. It was all real locations. For me, it felt like a lovely throwback to the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films. And I don't get why everybody loads the film. I thought it was just fun. Oh, wow. Uh, all I've yeah. seen is the negative discourse. And you're the first voice. I believe, and you know, I haven't listened to the episode because I haven't watched the film yet. I know the Cinemile uh, had differing views. Oh, fuck. Me and Kathy, we were the, so far the only people that I know who don't think the film is dire, but Dave almost had a hernia on that episode. It was very <laughs> enjoyable listen to listening to it. <laughs> Oh, I have to listen to it. He was, I'm really curious. I'm really he was curious. disgusted because Caddy was pushing back and I thought it was very, very funny. And then when I saw it, I was like, do you know what? I am actually on the side of Caddy here. This is actually grand. Right. This is actually grand. So I, <laughs> <laughs> but you That's know so what? Funny. It didn't feel like a superhero movie. So I liked it for that reason. Oh, it's okay. I'm just going to look up some of the, the credits. And I like Dakota um, Johnson's performance as well. She was playing this sort of curmudgeonly antisocial character. And to put that type of person in the role of having to be a protector is actually really fun for me. And it's a role that you don't see many female characters inhabiting. That's more like a Harrison Ford type role. And um, I enjoyed it. So I don't get why everyone is shitting their britches over it. It's grand. Thank you.